Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Howard Smith, and I'll be your host for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society with Ronaldo Brutico. Ronaldo, as most of you know, is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy, as well as a vice president and wealth advisor with Morgan Stanley. If you'd like to know more about the Academy or more about our programs, you can simply pull us up on the web at www.worldbusiness.org. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering several broad-ranging topics along with our lightning round. As always, we include questions and comments from our audience, although these have to be placed in advance through email. And if you'd ever like to email us a question on this show, remaining future shows, rather, um, simply email us at info at worldbusiness.org. One of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present you, our members, and our other listeners with concrete action ideas that you can use um, in your own investments. Today we're going to be focusing on a conversation with our guest, Pamela Hawley, who is the founder and CEO of the award-winning website, Universal Giving. That site helps people give and volunteer with top-performing projects all around the world. All projects are vetted through Universal Giving, a trademark proprietary model that they use, and 100% of each donation goes directly to the cause. And again, their email address is www.universalgiving.org. Our second topic, and one that's actually going to run and be the theme throughout the show, is the latest on what we're calling the fiscal hill. And no, it's not a cliff. Uh, and also there's a subnote there on John Boehner has no bullets. Ronaldo and I will also be doing our lightning round, which is a series of quick insights and comments on various asset classes, such as bonds, equities, gold, and real estate, with particular emphasis today on housing, uh, the price of a barrel of oil, the XL pipeline, and U.S. oil refining capacities. Uh, during our literacy, financial literacy section of the show today, Ronaldo and I will be discussing what is a treasury bill or a treasury bond. Ronaldo, one of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present our members with concrete actionable ideas that reflect the World Business Academy's desire to bring socially conscious practices on business and society. Can you expand upon this for our audience and explain exactly what this means and entails in today's climate? Ronaldo, take it away. Good morning, Howard, and thank you, and thank you to all our listeners who will be picking this up on MP3, and I can't wait to get through this piece to get to Pamela. But before I do, I just wanted to make a, I want to take a second here to, to do a, a little commercial, if you will, on our show. Um, I'd like to take a minute just to speak directly to all of you listeners. You know, over the past four or five months, we've seen a dramatic increase in the number of downloads of this show, and that's the reason that happened is because we started asking you about four months ago, if you like the show, tell your friends. It's it's free, as you all know. And that way we'll have more impact. Uh, these thoughts will get out to a broader universe and we'll be able to have more impact in the world around us. So I want to thank you because you've been doing it. You've been telling your friends and your relatives. And as a result, uh, we've had uh, over 15,000 downloads of our show this month alone, of which over 12,000 were just the last month's show, meaning those are not people going into the library as much as they're going into last month's show. So with the 12 to 15,000 active listeners, um, and it's been doubling pretty much every month the last four months, I have one more request. I want to continue to build our audience. I want to be able to get this incredibly useful information and the Academy's unique uh, perspective, developed over 26 years of actively being involved in the nonprofit sector of the business community and being on the cutting edge of business and helping people see how their financial future, their financial fortunes, and the world around them are all a unitary one, that actually we all do better when we do better for each other and for all. Um, so I'd like you, our listeners, to help us spread the word. Please, if you use social media, please search for World Business Academy on Facebook and register that you like our page. If you're on Twitter, my handle is Ronaldo Brutico, that's R I. N-A-L-D-O-B-R-U-T-O-C-O. And Twitter really is the great way to stay connected between shows, which we only do once a month, to what's breaking in news, particularly the world of business and society, that I think is important for you to be aware of. 
So the best effective way you can support the show and help us grow is to tell your friends and family, keep doing it, please, and thank you for what you've already done. Send them an email with the link to the show on the Blog Talk Radio and ask them to try it. And if nothing else, give us a shout at info at worldbusiness.org to let us know what we can do to help you help support our work. So thanks very much for listening to that brief commercial message, and now on to the show. Um, today's topic is uh, really, the lead topic is really about how much scary information is being pumped into the public consciousness, primarily by the media and secondarily by the Republican Party. Um, the, the, the media is pumping it because there's this old saying that William Randolph Hearst once came up with, if it, lead, if it bleeds, it leads, meaning if it's bad news, put it at the head of the front page because people will pick up the paper and buy it. The same thing is true today. What our, what our media has become uh, is, is addicted to stories of problems, pro- trauma, creating artificial conflicts, creating artificial horse races that don't really even exist. The so-called physical cliff fits neatly within that envelope of awareness. So what they're trying to do is to get us all charged up, so we hanging by, biting our fingernails, hanging on every word by the commentators and the pundits as they tell us what's happening behind the scenes, quote-unquote, as we propel ourselves like uh, Helm and Louise uh, towards the cliff. What people need to know is the cliff is not a cliff. Uh, uh, Robert Rice did a very thoughtful column about three days ago in which he pointed out that nothing really significantly begins to bite until March. As I've said on the show in the past month, in fact, the only thing that happens is on January 14th, Johnny Lunchbucket is going to see $40 less than his paycheck. So if you work as a blue-collar or as a, a bi-monthly wage earner or a white-collar service industry worker, your paycheck will, at most will be $40 smaller on January 14th if we go over the fiscal hill and nothing happens, uh, meaning it's not rectified. Now, the reality is it will be rectified. Why? Because, oh, by the way, there's one other thing that's going to happen. We just found out yesterday, on January 2nd, the Congress has been instructed by Boehner to cut all their office staff expenses by 11% across the board. I think that's a delightful signal he's sending, which if, if, the, if the Congress wants to, to stop this thing from being fixed, they're going to have to start by cutting themselves back 11%. Um, first of all, we'll talk later in the show about why Boehner has no bullets. But for right now, what I want to leave people with is this thought. When you are being fed panic and fear, you should always suspect there's something else going on. People who fearmonger are doing it usually for their own economic reasons. So since there really is no looming disaster in the fiscal cliff, and since what happens automatically on January 2nd is everybody's taxes go back to where they were under the boom years of Clinton. Now, the upper 2% means they go from 36 to 39%. That's not going to change their lifestyle, nor is it going to change what they spend. The problem is that the president correctly has pointed out and ran his campaign on the fact that 98% of the American public, people who earn less than $250,000 a year, really need a continuation of the taxes that we currently have. We want to keep those taxes low while people are still recovering from the recession. So we want to give a tax break to the 98%. We're not going to give it to the top 2%, and that's what the election settled. That the Republicans, as recently as yesterday, are holding on to this is an example of how they believe that by getting people upset and fear-mongering, that somehow they'll be able to cut a deal when, in fact, there's no deal for them to cut. The top 2% rages of earners are going up. And by the way, the mistake is frequently made is it's not all of the top 2% income that gets the rate increase. It's only the income they make above $250,000 a year. All the income below $250,000 a year, even for the wealthy top 2%, is not their taxes will not be changed. Under a bill currently sitting on the House of the floor of the House, which cannot be voted on because the Republicans won't let it come to a vote. Now that vote, that, that bill to dislodge a bill that's been trapped, which was passed by the Senate, every Republican, all they have to do is vote present, and the Democrats will carry that bill through. I made that suggestion in an office conversation here two weeks ago that that's what I saw would, could very well happen, and I was gratified to see that yesterday at a press conference which featured Rand Paul, the only senator willing to show up and take the Tea Party position, he said, basically, well, if, if the Democrats keep pushing, what we ought to do is encourage our friends in the House to just show up and vote present 
and then the Democrats will own this problem, and it'll be hung around their neck that it destroyed the economy. In fact, it will help the economy enormously. And this continuing fear-mongering is actually what's hurting it. So I want to just Ronaldo, let me that. Let me add something to that, too, that there's a well-known uh, item called the economic multiplier effect. And what it means is when you're studying the impact of dollars flowing into a community or dollars being spent, for every dollar spent, that dollar typically circulates through a community five to seven-fold, so that, for example, if a million dollars flows into a community, the real economic impact of that is five to seven million, not just the one. Now, the most important time for consumer spending in the United States occurs in the very last quarter, essentially around holiday shopping. And consumer spending is, in fact, three-quarters of the American economy. So if you create fear and people spend less because they're in fear during the holiday season, then, in fact, instead of getting a positive multiplier effect of five to seven-fold, you get a negative multiplying effect of a negative five to seven-fold reduction in economic activity. This happened back in 99 and 2000 when uh, George W. Bush was running for office. We were coming out of the most powerful decade of the 90s with huge growth, huge profits, and he started talking about a recession before he was, in fact, elected. And, in fact, he did it in the fourth quarter. It terrorized people. They spent less. And what, in fact, happened was a minor recession right when he took office. He used that minor recession to then justify the very tax decreases and cuts that we're going to reestablish now. But he needed to create the panic and the fear in order to accomplish that. Part of what has been going on now, in addition to fear over the fiscal cliff, is further attempts to slow the recovery of the economy down for political gain and political purposes, and essentially for the Republicans to blame the Democrats. I might add a quick caveat. Both Ronaldo and I are political independents. We do not uh, advocate on behalf of either party in, in these conversations. Um, stupid is stupid wherever you find it, right, Howard? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, I think that's a good point. And, Howard, I want to touch on one other thing in conjunction with that. But I'm not predicting a recession in the first quarter, although there's no question the fear-mongering has had a very, very depressive effect on fourth quarter spending. You can see it now. Um, the, 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 the good news I want to share with people is the customer, if you look at the underlying consumer behavior, meaning the, the willingness to spend, it looks like this customer this year is less promotionally driven, meaning they're not looking for the deepest, deepest discount. They're willing to accept a fair price. And you can see that showing up in the stocks of many different retailers. Uh, the, the problem is that the number of people coming to the showroom and the number of things that they buy when they're there are the average ticket. And the number of times that they don't buy anything at all, all those statistics are looking a little bit shaky right now, coming off of what was a fabulous fourth quarter, a third quarter and a fabulous Thanksgiving. We had a really good opening to the holiday season in terms of retail sales. Now, right. uh, I might add to that, and I'll just want to add to that, too, that because of the impact of Hurricane Sandy on the East Coast, there's been an enormous upsurge in new car buying because so many cars were destroyed in that storm. That's actually offsetting some of this fear-mongering that's been going yeah, on. Yeah, and, and there's another thing, too, that happened, and I want to explain this to people very quickly. We, and by the way, just a caveat, I don't normally recommend spending for the purpose of spending. I don't like materialism in that sense. Um, what we're talking about here is not encouraging people who don't need to buy things to buy things. I, I, I don't agree with that, actually. What we're talking about is analyzing what the consumer behavior is. I'm not recommending it. I'm just explaining it. And what I wanted people to be aware of is the third quarter of this, this year ended up with a very strong 2.7% annualized growth. That is not going to be the number come January. 2.7% is anomalously high, and it was a result because at the very last couple of weeks of the quarter, the military saw a bunch of money that was going to expire and decided to spend it before the cuts set in. So they, there was an artificial pop. The quarter would have otherwise been around 2% or so, I believe. And, and I'm still going to stick to my prescription or my prediction of um, five months ago, six months ago. I think we'll end the year um, at around the 2% number, a little over. And that won't mean we drop from 2.7 to 2. It means we actually are running at about a 2, 2.1, 2.2% annualized rate. So if you see what looks like a drop in the third quarter, that's just fear-mongering, too. That didn't happen, in effect. I want to make one final point, and that is this that the 
likelihood that we'll be running at a 2.5% true economic growth by June of next year is very, very high. And I think it will be as high as 3% annualized growth by December 2013. Now, in there is just the assumption that if, the clip, if we go over the, this July 1 fiscal curve or hill, that we will fix it with a bill that will be introduced by the 2nd or 3rd of January, which will restore the tax cuts for the 98%. It will be very difficult at that point with the new Congress for them to stop that. That bill will get through. So I don't even expect that the paycheck will be affected on January 14th because I think it will be fixed by then. And we'll get into that more later. So 2.7% growth artificially high. 2122 is probably where we were at in the third quarter. We're seeing some depression or fall off from that. I'm looking at at least a 2% by year-end, and I think we could do even better if all this fear-mongering ended sooner. So that's sort of an overall view. I hope we get questions for, uh, between now and January, because this is our last show of 2012, and uh, we'll talk some more about it. Uh, Howard's already commented on the positive effects of Sandy with regard to automobile purchases, which was very strong this month. Uh, we, we bought uh, automobiles, uh, I think we had 1.4 million this month, which is uh, very, very high given that the uh, average in prior years have been running about 14 million per year, so you're way above that at 1.4 million. Uh, the last thing I want to mention is the um, the, uh, the concept that going forward, there will be other benefits from Sandy, unfortunately, like construction, rebuilding, etc., which will also be shoring up the economy in the first quarter of, of 2013. Uh, don't want to dwell on that now because what I really want to do is. Howard, I'd love for you to introduce our guest, Pamela, if you would. I'd be delighted to, um, and let's bring Pamela on. Uh, Pamela is the founder and CEO of Universal Giving, which is a social entrepreneur nonprofit organization whose vision is to create a world where giving and volunteering is a natural part of everyday life. Universal Giving is an award-winning, web-based nonprofit allowing people to both give and volunteer with top-performing projects and volunteer opportunities around the world. Uh, the program has been featured on CNN Money, the New York Times, the L.A. Times. Uh, Ms. Hawley herself has been volunteering in community service since she was age 12. She's worked in microfinance in remote villages in India, crisis relief work in El Salvador following their earthquake. Uh, she's done digital divide training in the killing fields of Colombia and numerous other projects. With that, Pamela, um, you're on the air, and uh, here we go. Welcome, Pamela. I'm so excited. Good morning. Well, I'm thank so you so much for having me, Ronaldo and Howard. It's a pleasure to be on, and I love your momentum. Well, I, I, you know what? I just I got to do this real quick because I just think it's so. You are one of my heroes, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> uh, I I always advocate to people that that you can make money doing anything virtually. Why not do the right thing? And if you can make money doing the right thing, why not do something that gives back in the process? So what I love about what you've done and what makes you one of my heroes is that you've taken an idea of how to make giving, uh, and I love your mission statement, to connect people to quality giving and volunteer opportunities worldwide. And I love your vision, create a world where giving and volunteering are a natural part of everyday life. I totally believe in that. And you've done it, and you've merged it with a successful business career, and that's why you're my hero for the World Business Academy. Thank you, Pamela. Yeah. Well, thank you, Ronaldo. It's a it's a pleasure to be involved in both the business and uh, nonprofit worlds, and um, I enjoy them both very much. I'm very much a supporter of both businesses and the nonprofit community. So, just tell us a little bit. How does Universal Giving work? I know there's a lot of companies that you consult with to help them get into this. How does it work? Sure. Well, we have two services. You know, to me, um, taking a, a step back here, Ronaldo, you know, social entrepreneurship, to me, true social entrepreneurs um, have a business model. It's um, You can be for-profit or non-profit. We're non-profit because we believe that provides a pure mission for us and uh, is the best thing for our, our brand and, and, and trust within our the community of giving. So we have two services, and one is free. People can come to our site, and let's say for the holidays, they can choose that they want to give a gift package to their their wife, their significant other, their nephew, and they can give $25 to build a well in Uganda. Or they can go uh, help clean up a, a river for $75 in Brazil. So it's in over 100 countries across the world. And what we really do is help people give and, and donate to organizations that have been vetted. And we have a quality model that ranges from anywhere from six to 20 stages. We constantly innovate the quality model. It's in-house. 
Um, I developed it when I was abroad doing a lot of development work and volunteer work. I saw absolutely stellar nonprofits on the ground that were doing great work, and I saw a lot of fraud. And so I knew that if we wanted to instill people who wanted to give in impoverished countries across the world, we had to have that trust. So our public free service at universalgiving.org basically allows you to come in, give a gift package for the holiday, give a meaningful gift, or volunteer. Now, this also hits on a lot of what you're talking about, too. There are people who are seeking more meaning in their lives. There are people who are out of work from the economy. That's an opportunity, Ronaldo. That's an opportunity for them to find more meaning, volunteer, maybe find a different calling. And we've seen people come through our site who've done that. So that first service, you know, people can give and volunteer. It's free. 100% of your donation goes direct to the cause. But as an astute social entrepreneurship organization, we have a second service that helps support our mission. And we work with companies, companies such as Cisco, Flood Company, um, Symantec. And what we do is we help them with their corporate social responsibility programs. We're consultants to them. We help them define their strategy in CSR. We help them expand their CSR programs from headquarters to more than 50 countries across the world. We help their employees determine where the trusted best places are to give and volunteer. And we help them scale this all over the world, and they pay us to do this. So that helps support our mission. Um, our mission has to be both through philanthropy and people giving to us, and we appreciate that. And we also want to be smart and generate revenue. So those are the, the two services we provide. Yeah, I Thank you. And so I want to make it clear because, um, see, when I first encountered universal giving, uh, I, I didn't realize I could get in. I, mean, I could do it for $25. In other words, I thought it was for companies and their employees. And you covered that just a minute ago in your comments, and I just think it's great. I can go online, and I could do as little as $25 and know that where I'm going to put the money, 100% of the money I give, no, no piece goes to you guys. 100% goes to the charity I pick, and you've already looked at that charity and determined it's real. That's exactly right. And not only that, you can give $5 if you want, because our marketplace – who, who can't give? Who can't give, Ronaldo? That's what I want to know. When people say, who's your target market? Well, I mean, we have a, a target market that we think will that is, is good for us, but, but who cannot give? And I think that's the sea change from 50 years ago is people thought that they had to make it big when they were 50 or 60 and then give back. You know, there are 10-year-olds giving back. There are 10-year-olds. There are parents sitting down with their children and saying, you're going to give a portion of your allowance to a nonprofit. And it starts to inculcate this thought of giving right at the start. People, kids in elementary school are giving, so we go as low as five dollars. I think I think that's really great. And and um, how do you keep up with all the different charities to make sure that um, the ones you got registered and you're following uh, continue to do good work in the world? How do you how are you able to do that? Well, Ronaldo, I have to say, first of all, one of the most important things um, for any social entrepreneur is to have an excellent team. That is absolutely critical, and I cannot speak highly enough about the Universal Giving team. They are devoted. They are dedicated. We have a full NGO services uh, department and business unit, and that's what they focus on full-time. They vet for our public site, and they vet for our, um, our corporate clients. And one of them is from Armenia. She's got a worldwide perspective. We have a very kind of world worldwide-based team. And so I really point and, and thank and laud my team for being able to do that. Yeah, and, and, and um, where are you based, Pamela? We're in San Francisco, um, but we uh, serve um, as many parts of the world as, as we can. We're in over 100 countries, and if you don't see what you want and you want something else, we'll go find it. So we're very, very service-oriented in the sense that we'll go get something um, if you don't see it. So it's, it's um, So you really are global in your perspective. I noticed that you mentioned Africa as a possibility for goats and whatnot. And I, I, I've, over the years, I've gotten involved very satisfactorily. I'm very pleased with the work that I've seen through the Grameen Bank, through Finca, uh, Heifer International. All these are charities that have very, very major outreach uh, activities, but there are just thousands of them that you never hear about that are doing just as good work, and it's just they're so small, right? That's right. And, you know, most of these nonprofits, when I looked at them, Ronaldo, they don't have a marketing budget, much less a marketing team. You know, when I was on the ground in India, four hours outside of Bangalore, you know, the big, you know, kind of Silicon Valley of India, and four hours outside of there, you had to take a car to a cart 
with a cart driven with a horse. I mean, it's just, you know, it's really, you're, you're really, really out there in rural, rural areas. And, and when I was out there, I mean, you're, you're dealing with people who care so sincerely about the community. They're doing whatever they can. There's some really, really tough issues that are going on there. Families are struggling where you've even got 35% of the farmers in this local community in India that are, are committing suicide, Ronaldo, because they can't support their families. Well, and people, so we need to get this money to the families to train them, to show them how they can survive through the drought and how they can continue to provide for their families and make a living. And my real hope is, is that I get to give some people the gift that I've been given, which is I had two very supportive parents who encouraged me to do what I love to do and to do it with excellence. And I would definitely not be here today were, were it not for Wally Holly, my parents. Oh, that's a Pamela, there's a, there's a story going around the Academy here that one of the things that inspired you to set this up was your actual attendance at a World Business Academy meeting nine or ten years ago. Is that a true story? Um, or is that just you know I'd already started universal giving <laughs> I, I definitely like uh the the world business academy I think with its emphasis on um socially responsible business and spirituality was a great fit, and that was just wonderful um but i i you know I had the idea of starting this and had already started it earlier, but again, I really laud and and feel felt quite at home with what was going on with World Business Academy. Did, Pamela, did you did you and I meet at an Academy event in Santa Barbara seven or eight years ago? Yeah, that's when I, it was. Yeah, with yeah. Brian. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. Anyway, it's great it's great to reconnect. You know, I was going to ask you something. I wanted to pick up on that sweet tribute to your parents, but I, I wanted to focus on something we talk about a lot here at the Academy, which is the drought uh, and 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 the and the enormous consequences of climate change, which are accelerating beyond most people's understanding of how tragic this all is. And 763 people died in the Philippines last week from a typhoon that's just devastated them. You know about Sandy. People know about what happened to the hurricanes and the, uh, and, and the tornadoes in the Midwest last year and, and the forest fires in Colorado. And my question is this. Are you going to tackle an area like water, which is the Indian farmer you referenced, the reason they're killing themselves, as you correctly noted, is because of the drought. They don't know how to survive. They don't have wells. If they do, the wells aren't deep enough for the waters brackish. Are you going to take and target on a on an area like that, or are you just going to rely on the that, that whatever the best charity out there to help is? That's where you'll put your emphasis. Mm. Ronaldo, that's a very very astute question. In fact, we are coming up with something that is going to be addressing certain issue areas, just as you've mentioned. That will be launching in about uh, one to two quarters, and it is based on the fact that people do want to be involved in in solving a key issue like that. I, I would say an important tack to take is that when we look at these vetting these nonprofits, um, it's it's very holistic. You know, we we really kind of group them together to work together efficiently. So, for example, if you're dealing with health, we know that it's not just one thing. It's not. It's it, it's about getting nutrition in the schools. It's about training the parents. Um, it's about making sure that there's good land that can be um, provide produce and not just rely on imports. So, you know, when you're talking about health, we we have to look at this very, very holistically. And to your point, you're going to see in about uh, three to six months, you're going to see us addressing these issues as well. I think that's great because I'm, what, what we're seeing, and, um, and you may have noticed uh, Mayor Bloomberg's announcement December 6th, so just last week, uh, that he was going to have New York City lead the way on climate change. I've got to tell you, the rest of the world has been waiting for the Americans to get their act together on climate change. And, of course, it accelerates worse and worse out of control. And the poorest of the poor are the ones who suffer the most when there are these extraordinary droughts, when you have famine in Africa. I mean, these, these are – we buffer ourselves a lot in this country. Uh, there was a commentator on CBS this morning that made the comment, as great as the show in New York was – to raise money for Sandy with the 17 acts led by, you know, you know, uh, Bruce Springsteen and Bon Jovi and all those people, that Billy Crystal and, and John Stewart. As great an, uh, a concert as that was, all of those people have the ability to really rebuild and move on with their lives relatively painlessly from this point forward. The vast majority of people who used to live on Staten Island do not have that ability, meaning that the people in the lowest echelons of society are the ones who pay the greatest price because of our profligate creation of CO2 in our fossil fuel environment. And what I'm hoping is that you, because you've got such outreach, and others like you, will start to tackle some of these problems and get to the root causes of these issues so that we aren't forever having to band-aid the 
poor effects that they create with these terrible tragedies, but actually are heading it off at the past. I just encourage you to do it. I, I hope you do. I'm glad to have you more involved in those issues. We've been in them for 26 years, and that's where we live and work. Yes, and we will definitely, we are definitely doing that, and we're already doing it already through a lot of the groups that we work, because they do work holistically. These are very, very tough issues to tackle. In some ways, I think it's tougher than even the for-profit world. Um, They're very rooted in many, many different behavioral changes, political uh, reliances that we need to look at, um, economic situations. There's a lot of factors going on there. And so at Universal Giving, we take a very, very holistic view of this, and we've recruited the key nonprofits who can address this at the root. And in addition, you also see some new product offerings coming through in different and innovative ways that you can give um, coming up in the next few months. Yeah, and I'm sure you're also acutely aware of the rising status of women and how that is the number one thing that changes local societies for the better. Which is, there's so Absolutely. many topics. There's so many topics. Yes. And, there's, it's just, and there's so many opportunities to serve, aren't there? <laughs> yes. 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 Yeah. Well, and we I think that's to, one thing that you pointed to, Ronaldo, yeah. that I think is important about our vision, which is to, you know, to create a world where giving and volunteering are a natural part of everyday life. And one of the things we really hope is that, you know, this isn't, it's not just the holiday giving. We want people to, um, you know, for example, on our site, you can set up a fundraising page that allows you to fundraise um, for your child's birthday. So, you know, instead of getting gifts, it's like, all right, well, here are, you know, Johnny's 10 favorite gifts, $10 to build a well in Haiti. Uh, $15 to help provide a soccer ball for a child in the Middle East. I mean, and then he or she can list all those projects, and it's not just something that's in the holidays. We need to get giving so that people are thinking about it for Administrative Assistant Day, for Valentine's Day, for St. Patrick's Day, for, you know, any any kind of holiday. It's so important that we weave that giving in. You know, I always say that if you have the money to pay for a cell phone bill every month, then you've got the money to go be able to give every month. That's how we should be thinking about things. I totally agree, and I just want to endorse that concept. Uh, my wife's favorite answer when people ask her, what does she want for Christmas, is get me a goat or buy me a chicken. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's yep. what my kids have learned, yep. too. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to set up a backyard. page on on your site for her. She'll make it it'll make it so much easier for her. <laughs> right. Yes. So Pamela, it's and time that's actually for us to segue into so, our next so segment. Many different Go ahead, finish your sentence, panel. Yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> There's so many different options to be able to give, and I think that's what you know, the value that universal giving provides is that, you know, you've got the option to be able to um, support a chimpanzee or to be able to build a well or to be able to go um, provide schooling for a child. And that's why universal giving allows you to give to many, many different kinds and then do, um, do it so that 100% goes direct to the cause. Emily, you're a treasure. I want to thank you for all you're doing. And I'm glad that Ernst & Young picked you as a finalist for Entrepreneur of the Year. It's clearly well-deserved. And I'm going to close this segment, Howard. By I want to read. I've been following Pamela's blog lately, which I happen to love. Thanks for quoting Mother Teresa, by the way, a few days ago, because um, <laughs> I have a special affection for her. But um, Pamela, the Pamela Positive, promise yourself. This is how I'm going to end it. I want to just read what she reprinted from Christian Larson as her blog today. Promise yourself to be so strong that nothing can disturb your peace of mind. To talk health, happiness, and prosperity to every person you meet. To make all your friends feel that there is something special in them. To look at the sunny side of everything and make your optimism come true. To think only of the best, to work only for the best, and to expect only the best. To be just as enthusiastic about the success of others as you are about your own. To forget the mistakes of the past and press on to the greater achievements of the future to wear a cheerful countenance at all times and give every living creature you meet a smile, to give so much to the improvement of yourself that you have no time to criticize others, to be too large for worry, too noble for anger, too strong for fear, and too happy to permit the presence of trouble. Thank you, Pamela. Pamela, for me also, thank you very much for being on the show today. And again, that website is www.universalgiving.org. Thank you very much. Ronaldo, it's time now for our uh, lightning round, which for our listeners is a quick series of insights, comments on various asset classes. And today we're going to focus a little bit on housing, oil, the XL pipeline, and U.S. refining capacity. Ronaldo, okay, so, take it away. Sure. Okay, so let's do, um, let's do oil real quick because that's one people always relate to. So oil's in the top of the 80s still. Uh, we've pointed out in prior shows, be watching, folks, for the split between the price 
of Western inter, of, of, of uh, Intermediate Texas Crude, Texas Intermediate it's called, and what's being charged for the same oil in effect or qual similar quality grade from uh, the North Sea, which is called the Brent Index. So the, 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 the variance between the global market for oil, which is much higher priced right now, and the Texas Intermediate Crude price is a reflection of the amount of fracking and additional pumping going on in the United States in the last two years. And it finally hit a tipping point when uh, yesterday or the day before the Saudis announced publicly that they are going to voluntarily reduce the amount of oil they pump in order to support the prices which they see dropping towards the Texas Intermediate level, which is the high 80s, from the Brent crude oil numbers, which were in the 110s. So that and I'll just add to that, Ronaldo, that two years ago, following the congressional election, oil was at $60 a barrel, and the day after the American elections, the Saudis announced publicly that they would be more comfortable with oil in the $90 range, and within six weeks, oil moved to $90, Absolutely, eventually on to 105 well, And I think that I think people are aware that the Saudis have this giant spigot, and whether they turn it on or off, it determines the price of oil globally. But what they're looking at is that differential, and they want to close that gap, and so they want to see Texas Intermediate rise up to about 95, 90, 95 range at least, and they want to see the Brent thing holding where it is or coming down slightly so that you get an equalized global market on oil. Uh, that's, going to, that's going to cause very little disruption in the next 12 months here to American petroleum prices. And, in fact, we might have a little bonus coming because the investigation in California of what looks clearly on its face like a pricing scheme illegally engaged in by at least two refineries in California to keep prices of gasoline artificially high. And I think the Standard Oil uh, refinery in Richmond, California, is going to be a principal target of a federal investigation. I believe that the law was broken. I believe it was broken in a criminal way, not just a civil way. And I believe that the state of California is starting an investigation which will produce that result. Now, the fact that California is looking is what will tend to keep the prices of the gas pump down in the West and conceivably across the country. And by the way, the kind of crisis that was caused in California with this last little oil thing is exactly what they did with Exxon. And what it looks like is a similar kind of an Exxon illegal collaboration. So keep your eyes tuned to that, and it'll tell you more about the price of oil, more importantly, the price of gas at the pump. Now, having talked about oil, which I think is going to remain, as I said, roughly in the, in the 90 to 95 range, I don't see a spike in oil, certainly won't go above 100, and I suspect prices at the pump are pretty much equalized now where they will be for the foreseeable future. Let's talk about housing. Lots of good news in housing. Uh, Howard came into the office this morning, and, and just before we went on the air, he mentioned, gee, did you notice the statistic in Ventura County, which is adjacent to Santa Barbara County where this show originates, um, had fewer uh, people slide into foreclosure than any time since the beginning of the recession in 2008. And I, I think, think the, number, the number was half, half as many as prior reporting period. Yeah. And so, significant uh, decline. Significant decline. And we're now talking about, and this, by the way, this, 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 this looking back at what was going on in 2008 before the crash as a measure of where housing is today is increasingly happening, and that is not unique to Ventura or Santa Barbara County. That's across the whole country. So I want to really make sure people know that the, 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 the movement towards uh, an upswing in the, in the price of homes, so the, the, the price of homes has now stabilized and has started to go up, as you know, nationwide, that will continue even despite the silliness about the fiscal curb, that, that will still happen. The fiscal hill isn't going to change that, or what people call the fiscal cliff. It's not going to change that. And, 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 and I don't think we're going to go into a double-dip reception for a bunch of reasons, including I believe that by January 3rd or 4th at the latest there will be a solution to the tax issue, and after that you'll see a solution to spending issues. Now, having said that, I'm in, I feel very comfortable with the amount of pressure that the Democrats were under to, to, to slow the economy, the Republicans were blocking everything. Even with that pressure, if you've noticed, there's been a very constant decline in the unemployment rate and an increase in the number of people working. So if you were to take all of the employees just fired in the 38 states that Republican governors control, if you take them out of the equation, we're in a very good unemployment rate period now, and that would put it below 7%. So I think we're, we're talking about, or certainly at about seven, seven and a half max. So if we're, at, we're at a situation now where we can see a continuous improvement if we just don't do anything to shoot ourselves in the foot, which is what the fiscal cliff discussion is. It's an attempt to shoot yourself in the foot. 
So hopefully people will, will not be uh, swayed by it, although I have to report, Howard, consumer confidence last week started to dip as a direct result of that fiscal crisis. And that goes to what I was saying earlier about yes. the impact of fear on economies and the economic multiplier or the negative multiplier effect um, being played out, and that's yes. a sad thing to see. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to talk in a moment about the about purchasing Treasury notes, or are we going to do that in this section, Howard? No, we'll do that in, in a moment. Yeah. Okay. We so before up. we go to that, right. let's just touch a couple other asset categories. Um, obviously, we always talk about gold. My, my, my advice on gold continues to be there's as much evidence it could go down as it could go up. Hold. Uh, if you notice, the Fed did something that's unique in the entire history of the United States. It's never happened before. I completely applaud it. Was the exact right thing to do. Bernanke said, "We will keep these interests basically next to zero until unemployment gets to six and a half percent, unless inflation really peaks up very dramatically." That was the right statement. What he's finally acknowledged, and Paul Krugman wrote about this almost a year ago: the Fed has a dual obligation. One is to keep inflation down, and the other is to promote the economic growth. And they've always deferred to keeping inflation down. They've never gone on a limb to try and help growth. They were doing it subtly for the last year. This announcement this week by the Fed that they will overtly manage monetary policy towards growth, towards job creation, is a godsend. It's wonderful. And as uh, uh, Reich, I'm going to call again, quote Robert Reich said recently on television, there, this whole thing about the deficit, as you've heard many times on this program, is a whole bunch of baloney. The issue in the United States is jobs, jobs, jobs. There is no deficit problem. In fact, over the last three years, the deficit has gone below where it was three years ago. So the deficit is not the issue. And, and, and that, that, that conversation keeps us from getting to the real issues. So as you see the conversation getting more positive, as you see the Democrats sticking to their guns more and saying, hey, we won the election, we're going to lower the taxes on the top 2%, we're not going to increase the taxes on the 98% of the rest of people, uh, we're going to move forward with some sort of, a, some sort of infrastructure for people who don't realize it, that train that went off the bridge, I believe it was in New Jersey last week, that bridge had been listed as one of the bridges that needed desperate repair. 53% of the bridges in America, if you listen to the show, need repair, and we're not repairing them. We all know the roads need repair. We need the railroads are operating in a different century from the rest of the world. I mean, we run a railroad like it was the 18-1900s, and the rest of the world is running them on the 21st century. So we're, and that means the speeds we run at are crazy, the consumption of fuel is crazy, inconvenience is crazy, uh, over-reliance on air, which is even more fuel-intensive, is crazy. So we have a whole bunch of different sectors of the economy that are ready to move forward in unison now. Example, if we don't shoot ourselves in the foot, by the end of the first quarter, I'm expecting to see an uptick in commercial uh, real estate following the residential uptick. Watch for it. I think it's not far away. Can't call it yet. Isn't here today, but it's coming very close. Uh, I I, um, want to end with a comment I think I made last month, but if I didn't, I want to go on record. I have been against buying California general obligation bonds, as Howard knows, since 2008. For a variety of reasons, the California economy was in shambles, and there were so many structural problems in California, it didn't seem to me that it was safe to believe that they could continue to operate without having to go to some sort of a um, script-based government, uh, which, by the way, they dipped into a couple of times. Well, I'm now pleased to say, as of a month ago, I believe that California general obligation bonds, which are tax-exempt, are now a good investment again because they're paying a fairly high rate of interest, but California has gotten its beginning to get its economic house in order. Not only is the unemployment rate coming down in California, several structural things have happened, two of them because of initiatives, one being the people of the state of California have taken over the process of redistricting, so now the districts in California are starting to resemble the population more, and that's created a very, very different political climate here, which is conducive to growth. Number two, the, we, the public, by an initiative, removed, by ballot initiative, removed the requirement that a two-thirds vote was required to pass a budget, which kept every budget locked up, and they kept putting padding the budgets with more and more goodies for the for the holdout one or two assemblymen from Botung districts in the middle of the state, that's all gone away. So now a simple majority can, ca- can, can, can pass a budget, which means you don't have to cut a deal with every Tom, Dick, and Harry to give them what they want. You can actually pass a budget that makes sense for the most people. And, you're not and be it should be noted that if the uh, state, Senate, and Assembly do not pass a budget, 
they don't get paid. Which is an and even that, better rule we passed. <laughs> which is a great incentive. And last time when they were faced with that, a year or two ago, they immediately solved the budget issue. And one other further caveat I want to mention about uh, the states, states, unlike counties, cities, and businesses, cannot constitutionally go into bankruptcy. And therefore, the states must meet their obligation. They must ultimately well, balance their budgets. The, the word the word must is an interesting word because, as I a minute ago I referenced, the state of California twice that I'm aware of in the last four years has issued script because it ran out of money. And so you can say they're not broke, but when somebody's issuing script instead of money, it, it causes a whole oh, set of ramifications. Great fear, but in the end, that script is redeemable. Of course and it is. Of course right. it is, and, and you know I love alternative currencies, Howard. But my right. point right. is the definition of bankruptcy when you're talking about something like the state of California with over 32 million people in it is a very different can of worms than anything we ever want to face. And so I'm reporting that you can now safely believe that California is going is pulling further and further away from insolvency. And I see several things on the uptick, including, and I want people to start watching this, one of the greatest modern economic miracles was Silicon Valley. And we all know what they did and what it continues to do to not only advance the American economy, but change, ra radically change the, the future of the planet. Uh, well, there's a similar thing happening right now in San Diego County, where a couple of institutions, Scripps, a university, University of California, San Diego, and a slew of at least 500 companies have located around the most advanced purveyors of genetic sciences or genomes. And what you're seeing now is a bio technology revolution that's at its very earliest stages. It reminds me of Silicon Valley back in the 70s. So watch for an enormous amount of growth in the, ge in the biosciences coming out of this uh, marriage of biology, genomics, and um, advanced computer profiling and modeling. It, it, it's huge. And I, and I started telling people this about two months ago, and I was delighted that the head of the... Um, the largest cancer institute in America, MD Anderson in Houston, just this week on television, acknowledged that we are at a confluence of these factors in such a powerful way that literally the end of most cancers is within sight, within five to ten years max, if we just get our act together. So, and by the way, that same interview revealed the fact that the federal government spending to for basic research on eliminating cancer and other serious illnesses is down 19% in the last five years. Another example of infrastructure, that's called human infrastructure. So what we need to do is start, to start dealing with rebuilding America, start cashing the peace dividend from the reduction of, of the conflict in Iraq, the reduction of, con of the conflict that's going to continue in Afghanistan, and start looking at moving some of those military dollars over to the peacetime economy. Last comment I want to make, and then we can move on. The military buddies that I hang around with, and I have a lot of good friends in the military, believe that they could withstand a 10 to 20% cut very easily in the budget, provided the military gets to say where that 10 or 20% goes. In other words, where do they take it off? What they're afraid of is that the Congress will force them to keep building big weapon systems because their the congressional contributors force them to, and they'll have to take the 10 or 20% cuts out of readiness. So what they're saying is if you let us pick what we can cut, you don't force us to buy weapon systems we don't want, we can deal with 10 to 20% less money and give you the same level or better of a defense for the country that you want. Now, that type of rational approach is what has to come next, and I'm hopeful will come next in 2013. Let's see as this whole um, you know, cuts in domestic spending starts to take hold and we see what the, what, 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 what the look and feel of that is. Um, we, we'll come back, I guess, to Social Security and Medicare next month because I want people to, to have a, a sense of how little we need to do. First of all, Social Security shouldn't even be on the table because it's not part of the budget for the federal government. It's a separately funded system. So uh, why it's even being discussed, I don't know. Medicare, which is a safety net for the poor and the elderly primarily, and for people who fought in our wars for us, the military. Medicare absolutely could be, quote, fixed without changing the definition of who's entitled to get it, being going from 65 to 67, you could fix it if you would just take out a couple of things that the Congress has forced it to do. For example, we're the only country in the world that pays retail price for American drugs. Everybody else pays 40% less. And by law, 
the government's not allowed to negotiate for the same price that Germany, Italy, France, Spain, Portugal all pay for drugs made in America. So think about it, folks. 40% of the cost of all the drugs in America could be reduced overnight if the government was allowed to require a negotiation like most major countries in the world already negotiate with our own drug suppliers. The logic they give for why they overcharge us is pathetic. They say, well, without the excess profits, we wouldn't invest more for uh, drug research. Just not true, folks. Just not true. What it is is gouging, and, and, and what we need to know is the political influence of big pharma on our Congress is what's keeping the inefficiencies in our current Medicare system. And there's so much money in low-hanging fruit there in just waste, graft, and corruption that we could literally re-energize the Medicare system without having to change the eligibility requirements. And not that I'm against it, but that's really what's an option for us. I guess that's it for the, 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 the quick touch points, Howard. What's the next part of the show? Well, we're actually coming down. We have uh, nine minutes left, and uh, we want to touch basically on our financial literacy on treasuries, um, and then we'll wrap up uh, after that. Okay, let's just do treasuries quickly. Um, I was and I, I was given a suggestion last week of, to, to buy treasury bills from the uh, treasury notes from the, 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 the five and ten year t bills, as they're called. Um, and I was told to buy them. Uh, because of the insecurity over the fiscal cliff. And I told the person who made that suggestion to me that I thought it was absolutely laughable. And I mentioned it to Howard as well. So can you imagine something that pays you almost no interest and that likely will fall in value? Now, why will a treasury fall in let me, value? Let me just point out those rates, too. If you were to purchase a five-year treasury, the rate approximately right now of return is 064 if you go out 10 years, it's 1.67. You go out 30 years, it's 2.86. Okay. Uh, and and let me put that in the context of inflation, which is probably running at 2%. So if you get a 0.65 or 6.4 return, you're actually losing a 1.5 points almost per year, just on inflation. Forget the use of your money. So you're, you're, you're paying to have your money on loan to the U.S. government. Money doesn't make any sense. Now what's going to happen is as the economy picks up in 2013, and it will, the Fed will start raising rates. My guess is by the second half of the year, certainly by the beginning of 2014. Now, as, as it becomes clear that the rates will rise, the value of the bond itself that you own is going to drop because new ones will get issued, which pay higher interest rate. So the old ones are worth less. So not only are you going to get it whammied because you're getting almost nothing, you're getting a negative return on your money. And by the way, that's out 10, 20, 30 years. It's just more negative when you further out you look. So you're not only getting a negative return when you're being charged for your money to be there. On top of that, you're going to lose the capital asset. It's going to have a loss in value as well as rates go up one year or more out. So I urge people, do not buy treasuries. That's a terrible idea. In fact, my guess is we're creating a bubble that treasuries are a part of, and we'll be reporting more on that in the future. So recommendation, whereas a California general obligation bond is paying a decent rate of interest right now, and it's tax-exempt, and California ain't going to go broke anymore. I'm not worried about that. Go out and buy them and have a ball and be prepared to watch how those bonds will retain their value because newer bonds issued by California one year or two years from today will carry less interest, not more. The reverse is true in, in the government, federal government. Right, and just as a caveat, as since I am a financial advisor, I do have to mention that I do both buy and sell at, for my clients both California general obligation bonds and treasuries uh, in certain circumstances. So just people should be aware of that. Um, we have about five minutes left, Ronaldo. And um, how would you like to wrap this up and go back to our original topic about the fiscal cliff? Well, let's do that because we, we, we said we talked about Boehner has no bullets. So let me mm -hmm. make a, com a comment about that. The reason by uh, – and forget what you think about Boehner, whether you like him or you don't like him, whether you think he, he, he should spend less time in the tanning booth or not, that's – irrelevant. What's relevant is that his caucus is now behind him. He's been able to demonstrate that they're better off following his lead than being, um, than being obstructive. So when the, when the Tea Party, the Congressional Tea Party uh, press conference happened yesterday, they literally had to change the room they were in because only five Congress people showed up. So they moved to a smaller room so it wouldn't look so obvious that no one was there. So they had five congressmen and one Senator Rand Paul, as I mentioned earlier. What those five are saying, and they're the only five saying it is, we're going to stand on principle to the last man. 
the principle being we don't want to raise the taxes on the wealthy. That principle was settled in the last election. Boehner knows that principle was settled. The country knows that principle was settled. 61% of all Republicans have already said, give up on that, go ahead and raise the taxes to the top 2%. 61% of the Republicans, 78% of the Democrats. So you're talking about a massive agreement at the public at large, and the president, by continuing to campaign on this issue since the election was over, so to keep the heat on, Boehner knows he has no bullets. Even Eric Cantor, who's been circling Boehner for the last two years, we're trying to take his job, has kept quiet and signed on with Boehner because everybody knows a deal's got to get done. And what's going on right now is this big, giant bluff. The problem is the lack of sophistication in the Congress is such they don't realize that the bluff itself is doing damage. That's what Howard was referring to earlier about the depressed effect on retail sales. Actually, the cynical side of me, Ronaldo, says they do know the bluff (laughs) is having an effect, and they want that negative effect so they can blame the opposition party for the bad economy. Howard, they might know it at the Heritage Foundation. They don't know it in the halls of Congress. Those guys are barely literate. (laughs) I hate to tell you, but and not all congressmen. I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here. But but there are a lot of Congress people who have a very difficult time finding their way back to their office without an administrative aid. I mean, people think that Congress people are brilliant somehow and they got there because they're gifted intellects. That is not how they got to Congress. And so... What we need now is a level of patriotism in the Congress, because since Boehner knows he has no bulk, meaning he has no ability to stop an increase on the top 2%, it's time for a little statesmanship, because if they start to handle it better, the Republican Party could come back as the old Republican Party and survive a minor Tea Party splintering. I think they could keep their party intact. If they continue to do what they're doing, they're going to discourage so many conventional Republicans that the size of the Tea Party split off won't be that much larger, but the loyalty of the remaining Republicans won't be that high either. So I would argue to the Republicans, in in service of building a stronger two-party system, tell your elective leadership, by the way, as Jamie Dimon, which Jamie Dimon runs J.P. Morgan, that's the largest investment bank on New York, and and Jamie Dimon is not exactly my more favorite character. I don't think he's a particularly pleasant guy. He's got an ego bigger than all outdoors. But Jamie Dimon yesterday said, come on, guys, we know what's going through, let's get it done. So to me, the Republicans supporting traditional conservative values, i.e. keeping taxes low on 98% of the public, that's a conservative value. Okay, The Republicans need to see that, move quickly, get this piece behind us, and then, and, 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 and then in the process, get over the idea there's an even remote chance you're going to hold the debt ceiling hostage, and we will talk about that in January in our next show, that's not going to happen either. So you might as well develop a philosophy for governing now with the Democrats that demonstrates you're not crazy, that you're capable of governing with the Democrats. And if you do that, the Republican Party could survive, thrive, and be a major force in American politics once again. If it doesn't, I can almost assure you the Republican Party, as you know it today, will no longer be a major force in national politics, and you'll see it sliding away every time there's an election every two years. The demographics are against them, and now the, now the march of history is against them. So I urge everybody who has any influence on a Republican legislator, get them to do the right thing faster rather than slower, or as we say around the academy, have more fun, tell the truth faster. And the truth and is... Let me make a reminder to, to our, our listeners uh, that if you'd like to place a question for us for the next show on any of these topics that we've discussed... The address is info, I-N-F-O, at worldbusiness.org. Um, and, 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 and Howard, then let me, let me just end with this one little request, which is thank you for hearing me at the beginning of the show about the phenomenal growth of our podcast. It's because you told your friends and colleagues and family, please keep doing that. Send them links to our Blog Talk radio page. Ask them to come and check it out. Ask them to send in questions. What do they want us to talk about? We'll respond to them on air. Because this show and past shows are available on Blog Talk page of our website, and we'll be available all the way back to the very first one, so you can see what we said a year ago, not just what we said last month. It's available on our website, which is www.worldbusiness.org. www.worldbusiness.org. Go there. All the shows are archived. Pick it up as an MP3 file if you missed one, and for sure think of sending one to a friend or relative. Couldn't give them a better present. 
It will help them make more money in 2013, and it will help them understand better the world around them. It is a commentary on business and society. And thank you, one and all, for the support let me add to, and Let me add to that, Ronaldo, that this is actually the end of our third year of doing these uh, conversations, uh, which originally started as an outgrowth of the fiscal crisis for our members. Uh, and in January, on the 10th of January at 11 a.m., we begin our first of our fourth year of uh, podcasts uh, for our members and listeners. And we hope you continue to follow us. Uh, again, the site is www.worldbusiness.org. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time to listen, and uh, we appreciate your comments and thoughts, and we look forward to uh, catching you next month for the beginning of our fourth year. Thank you again. And Thank you. And any questions or comments, send them into Info World Business. We'd love to answer them on air, and nothing's too small or too large for us to want to tackle if there's anything we can do to help. So thank you very much, and very happy holidays to everyone. Thank you, Ronaldo, as well, and a happy holiday to our listeners. Bye-bye now.